Welcome to episode 33 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio from the beautiful campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my colleague, my good friend, my co-host, and the man who spins more plates than anyone else I know, <laughs> John Sloat. Oh, I wasn't expecting that one. I've heard some good ones, but that was uh, that was one I have not heard before. I'm trying to mix it up, trying to keep trying to keep it fresh. Doc, students are on campus. Yeah, they're back. Yeah, they haven't been here since February, early March, March. March. early March. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, frankly, it's just it's it's a hop in place all of a sudden. It is. It is. Lots of masks. Lots of social distancing. Lots of awkward, oh, I want to shake your hand, oh, but we're not supposed to do that, so we're not. Fist bumps, yeah, elbow bumps. Elbow bumps, head nods. Trying to smile with your eyes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So we are mixing things up a little bit in that normally we record on Tuesday mornings and release episodes Tuesday afternoon. But because the school year is underway, we're going to have to change that. And now this week and for the foreseeable future, we're recording on Monday afternoons yeah, and le- still releasing on Tuesday afternoons. At, at least through November, I imagine, I so. we'll be yeah. recording Monday afternoons. Yeah. yeah. So in any case, um, we want to welcome you on board, whether you're a longtime listener. Can we call them longtime listeners since we've only been doing this since January? A moderate time length of listener. Yeah. Okay. I don't gotcha. know. I don't know what to call them. Okay. Long time listener, first time caller kind of thing here. Yeah. Um, as well as uh, those who have joined the pod more recently, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us by uh, Twitter at VNS Pod. You can email us various and sundry podcast at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook page that you can connect with us there. And one of the biggest things you can do for us if you really want to do us a solid is you can go and leave us a glowing review and a five-star rating and and personally we we have enough overseas listeners and by overseas i mean non-united states listeners i'd love to see a review in another language (laughs) although neither of us would be likely to be able to actually read it i got google translate you know i can i can copy and paste that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but I would love to see something in another language, whether it be yeah. French or Spanish or yeah. uh, Korean. I would love to see a review in another language. We did pick up a listener or down. We picked up a download in South Korea. Recently. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So who knows? We yeah. a, we, it seems like we have a pretty consistent listener in Belgium as well. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So in any case, um, if you would like to take a more active role, even than that, which would be great. We are going to do a question and answer episode next episode. So you've got like a brief window left to send in any questions you might have for us that we would consider including. And those have to be in English. Yes, those do have to be in English, please. Yes. So, well, last episode, I got a little salty. Yeah. Is is this the Matt Harmon apology tour episode? No, I I don't (laughs) feel like I have anything to apologize for. I, I, I do not I do not regret anything I said. And I think my saltiness has settled into a more um steady level, a, a, a more subdued yet still lurking below the surface, ready to erupt at any moment hmm. level. So we should probably check in with college football, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, I think you pay attention more to college football than I do. What's what's the plan? What's going on? So we recorded um, right before the Big Ten officially announced that they were canceling the fall season. We kind of knew it was coming. Though. We like, knew it was coming. We broke it on the podcast. <laughs> and the Pac-12 followed about an hour later. What's been interesting, though, is that the ACC, SEC, and the Big 12 have all said, we're going to keep moving forward. We think we can create a safe environment. We think we're going to uh, be able to uh, move forward, or at least we're willing to move forward as things stand now. Obviously, things can change, but uh, they're willing to go a little further and see if they can make it work. Probably the biggest development within the last couple of days was that Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields, one of the leading Heisman candidates for the upcoming season. Sure, and a pretty high draft pick. Yeah, he'll be a top 10 draft pick at least. Uh, In any case, he created a petition that he invited fans, everyone, anyone to sign asking the Big Ten to reinstate the football season. And I think he released it at like... 11 o'clock Sunday morning, sometime around there. And within a matter of hours, it had over 100,000 signees. Okay. so That's a start. It's a good start. Um, I signed it. It's not going to do any good. Yeah, I think I saw you on Twitter being like, I don't think this will do anything, but better than doing nothing. That's right. That's right. So uh, we'll see what I personally am not optimistic that the other conferences will be able to actually have a college football season. I think with the return of college students to campuses, there will be a spike in COVID numbers on those college campuses. And I think that's just going to scare the living daylights out of the administrators. Yeah. And again, it comes back to the word liability, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I think, honestly, my worst nightmare is there actually being a college football season without Ohio State in it. That, that to me, is like the apocalypse scenario of having to, be, having to choose whether or not to watch the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, and not be able to see the Buckeyes play. Which the Buckeyes out of that are, are probably the biggest loss from the Big Ten, right? Nationally oh, without speaking. question. Um, Nationally speaking, right? Pretty consistently in the Final Four. um, Certainly on the bubble of the Final Four, if not in it, uh, pretty consistently. And very few other Big Ten teams. Maybe Wisconsin is maybe next. Um, Uh, Penn State is probably... Penn State and Wisconsin are probably the next um, tier of contenders. Uh, And then uh, the state up north, a little step below that as well. I think I'm pretty good step like if you take it I mean, historically they're up there right but oh, yeah. in the last yeah, yeah. 10 years it's been, no no it's been pretty terrible anyway no. um the other thing going on right now in sports that probably makes us a little happier is the nba playoffs yeah are, are getting ready to go underway which is interesting to say in august you know yes they're actually starting right now i think as we're recording on monday afternoon i think the first round starts this afternoon okay so who do you got who who, who do you yeah, we're not going deep dive on this, but as we're getting started off here, I I'm I feel pretty good about picking the Clippers to come out of the West. They're the 2 seed. Okay. I know the Lakers are the number 1 seed and they have LeBron James, but they just don't seem to have 
gotten back together and gelled very well in the bubble. So I'm not optimistic they're going to be able to figure that out and, and be able to beat the Clippers. So I think the Clippers will probably come out of the West. And Frank Vogel teams tend to fold in the playoffs, right? As, <laughs> as many of our Indiana listeners will attest. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. What about you? In out, the of, West? out of the West? I, I also chose the Clippers before we had any conversation about it. Um, yeah. Again, the Lakers just seem to be falling apart. And I, you know what? They're playing the Trailblazers who, as the eight seed, who are a very, very good team. Yeah, Damian Lillard's playing out of his absolute mind, just doing and, ridiculous things. Is it McCollum's playing with a fractured McCollum. back or something, yeah. something along those lines? Yeah. You know, and he's playing quite well at the same time. And but they don't play any defense, which is maybe what the Lakers need <laughs> to, <laughs> to get things right. You know, who knows? But um, ultimately, I, it's hard to root against Kawhi Leonard. Um, I think Kawhi's a. a oh, very, I'm capable of rooting against Kawhi. I'm not, I'm not a huge Kawhi Leonard fan, but. Uh, let me rephrase. Hard to pick against Kawhi Leonard because okay. he because he is quite good and Okay, here's my unpopular oh hot take. I think he's overrated. Oh man. I think the reason the Clippers are as good as they are is Paul George. Kawhi is really, really, really good. But okay, let's look at this for a minute. Last year, the Raptors won the title, right? Sure. And everyone's like, oh, it's because Kawhi is so awesome. How good is how good are the Raptors this year? Well, they're good enough to be my pick out of the East. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. So yeah. this supposedly best player in the league, according to some, leaves the team, and the team's very likely going to get back at least to the conference finals. At least to the conference finals. If not yeah. to the NBA finals. Remind me what happened to the Cavaliers after LeBron left them? They were a dumpster fire. An absolute dumpster fire. Yes. I think an argument could be made for a the Raptors are a better managed franchise they than, are. than the Cleveland Cavaliers. But my point is, everyone was all in on Kawhi's the most amazing, greatest, he's the best player in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And he left the team, and the team, in terms of record-wise, is just as good as they were last year with Kawhi. So... Maybe we need to pump the brakes on Kawhi's the best player in the league kind of talk and say he's really, really good. But I think the reason the Clippers are the team to come out of the West and probably win it all, Paul George, I think he's the main reason. Well, we can disagree about the main reason for the Clippers being great, but— On to the East. Yes, the East. Who you got coming out? So I already said, but the Raptors. I yeah. I, I like it's a team that's been there. It's a team that there are—you know, they're hard— to not root for. They don't have any superstars, you know. Um, they just play good basketball. And so they're, I, I find the Raptors fun to watch. Yeah. I'm going to go with the Bucks. I still think Milwaukee's the best team in the East. Yep. Um, That's a good pick as I well. I think with Giannis and uh, Middleton, I, I think they will have enough to get past the Raptors. So that could be a that could epic be a fun series. series in the conference finals if that plays out. I'm curious to see with their – essentially being no home court advantage, how does that change the dynamics of the playoffs? Because yeah. normally that plays a pretty significant role in who you think might win, right? You might like If you think two teams are relatively even, but one team has the home court advantage, you typically lean towards, well, flip a coin on a neutral court, but you know they have the home court advantage, they'll probably win. Uh, I, I do like Giannis for... I think he might be the most competitive guy in the NBA right now. Like, he just always seems to be setting up a competition for himself, you know. He's in the gym every day. He's 
he's uh, he's probably I think I like that statement that he's the most competitive person in the league, vocally competitive. Could be, could be. Well, speaking of the Greek freak, wow. our topic. For, what a transition! You like that? You wow. like that? That just came to me. Yeah. So that was not planned, but uh, our topic for the day is as we start the school year, and both of us are uh, our, our language professors. That's right. We thought it would be helpful to talk about the benefits of learning the original languages. And so I want to I put a caveat out there that I think that you can still benefit from what we'll talk about, even if you're not a pastor, a student. I think that getting a sense of why the original languages are valuable could at least at some level perhaps give you an appreciation for the labor that your pastor puts in to serve by preaching and teaching. So, Or maybe an understanding of the labor your pastor should put in yeah, preaching and teaching. Yeah. yeah, yeah. if you want to go that way too. Um, <laughs> Skew negative, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I see how it is. Um, so uh, why don't we start with just bigger, even bigger picture than biblical languages. What are some of the benefits in your mind to just learning a language, period, outside of your native tongue? Yeah, I I think it helps us become a more well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I I don't say that to say like A equals B here, right? Right. But the process of learning, the process of learning some humility, because language learning will humble you uh, at, at one spot or another. Yes, um, it will teach you to have diligence and uh, perseverance in the midst of language learning. Um, and, and all those things combined really transform and can change a whole person. So I, I think language learning is a really excellent way to, uh, to grow personally. Yeah. What would you say? I would agree with that. And I think that um, it expands the way a person thinks. Since language is, is so foundational to thinking that learning another language helps you learn to think in different ways. It exposes mm-hmm. you to different ways of articulating things, of understanding reality. And so I think that those are some of the benefits in general. And if we're honest, I think here in the U.S., we are terrible at this. At learning other languages? Yeah, in terms of like the the sort of normal traditional educational structures. You know, most school systems probably have uh, some sort of language requirement you're required to maybe take a couple of years of Spanish or French or something like that. Um, but we don't feel the immediate need of it because oftentimes, not all the times, uh, but in the United States, we're just walking down the street. Everything's in English. Um, we, yeah. there's, there's not a felt need for another language. Right. Now, obviously, with the, with the dramatic rise of, uh, of the Hispanic population in the U.S. within the last 25 or so years, there are certainly pockets of the U.S. where— um, Knowing Spanish is very, very helpful. Is very, very helpful. But even then, I think how language learning tends to be done in our school system tends to be pretty poor mm-hmm. because we see the, the, the product of it typically. You know, we, we have students who we look at their high school transcripts and like, oh, you took three years of Spanish. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Okay. <laughs> And, you know, maybe the, the extent of what they know or remember is hola, como esta, right? Mm-hmm. Like, S-O-C-K-S, like maybe like three phrases, 
I never studied Spanish. Those are the three phrases I know. <laughs> so um, when it comes to the biblical languages, um, when when you think about that, before we before we dive into the benefits of it, I think it's important to put another caveat in the conversation. And that is simply to say that learning the languages is not essential mm-hmm. to being able to read, understand, and apply the Bible to your everyday life. I think that's an important qualification. Yeah, yeah. Would you say it's an essential piece for a preacher or teacher to have in their tool belt? That's a little bit of a different question. It is. Essential is, is, is a tricky word. Because what I'm not saying is you can't faithfully preach God's word without having the languages. You can. Mm-hmm. But you are cutting yourself off from a whole realm that would make your preaching and teaching even more effective and grounded. Mm. And so I, I think that I want to be careful to say, I don't want to say it's essential, but man, if you don't, you, you are missing out on a huge, huge aspect that would help you enormously in your preaching and teaching ministry. Mm-hmm. So what about you? Do you think that's a fair? I, I think that's a fair assessment. I think it's hard to go. Um, you absolutely must have this. However, at the same time, I, I know how it's enhanced my uh, teaching when I, when I do get to teach. Um, learning those languages have been very, very helpful um, and, and has molded me as a person in a way, like we talked about earlier, in a way that has helped me preach that I don't think I would have been able to do right. without them. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the, the benefits. We've got a long list here of tracks that we could, could kind of pursue, but... Since you're our church history guy, let me start oh, with this. Boy. Let me start with this. Um, what role did the biblical languages play in the Reformation and the sort of rediscovery of the gospel in the Reformation period? Yeah. Um, so as, as far as, as, as I understand it from church history, uh, Luther would have gone back to the Greek language rather than going to uh, the Latin versions of the scriptures, mm-hmm. and would have read them and read and read them differently. Uh, re- read that Greek translation differently, and came to different conclusions uh, based on the reading of the Greek language versus just a straight reading of the Latin. Um, yeah. and, and so came to some very very different conclusions that really set off the Protestant Reformation in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that when you when you go back and and look at some of the key doctrines for um, the medieval Catholic Church, at least some of them, were based on the Latin translation of the Greek and Hebrew scriptures. And translations that when you go back and look at the actual original Greek and Hebrew, they don't support what doctrines the medieval Catholic Church had built upon those particular um, those particular words and phrases in the Latin translations of the Greek and Hebrew originals. Yeah, and and uh, Luther, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, he he knew the Greek and knew the Hebrew and, and read them, 
but he also took those and made German translations. Like he, yes. he, he did feel that the people did not need to know Greek, but wanted to get uh, the scriptures into their uh, mother tongue, so to speak. Right, because at that point, uh, people's exposure to scripture was through the reading of the Latin translation in the services. Mm-hmm. And the vast, 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 vast majority of Christians didn't know Latin. Latin was a sort of scholarly language. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the, the common tongue of the, of the everyday person. And so part of Luther's heart in the Reformation was we need to translate from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, into the common tongue so that the average person, the plowman, the mother, whoever, could read the text for themselves and benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the heartbeats of the, of, the, of the Protestant Reformation was this emphasis on um, the original languages and then using that knowledge to translate the Bible into the common language so that everyone could read it, not just the priestly class. Right, and, and I think it's safe to say the priestly class was, was using it at some level to help control the people. Sure. Um, sure. And, and Luther really wanted to, really wanted to set them free uh, by uh, by understanding the truth and by understanding knowledge. Yeah. So Luther was eminently quotable, and so here is one of his quotes about the languages. He said, "Languages are the scabbard that contains the sword of the spirit. They are the casket which contains the precious jewels of antique thought. They are the vessel that holds the wine." I might use that in Greek one this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you use that this week? It'd be good. So, <laughs> I, you know, even on a historical level, the languages have played a key role in the ref, the reformers, in essence, rediscovering the gospel from the layers of false doctrine that had been had accumulated on top of it from the medieval Catholic Church. Hmm. But we're we're no longer there, right? I mean, we're in a very different contemporary situation. Sure. So um, what are some of the benefits? So as you're, as you're about to face your Greek students, your beginning Greek students, this Thursday, just in a matter of a few days now, if one of them is to ask you, John, why are we learning the languages? I have, we have so many good English translations. Why do I have to go through the pain, the sweat, <laughs> the tears, the consternation, the frustration, the hard work of learning Greek? Well, my, my answer to that question always is, um, it is it's an excellent training ground for self-control, for, for shaping the person like we've already talked about. Um, the other piece that I always bring up is it does force you to slow down and become a better reader of Scripture, to sit in a single verse for a time and work your way through it. Yeah. Um, um, even, even though you and I teach Greek, uh, we are by no means native speakers, um, right. and we, we don't, frankly, move through it that quickly. And so we, we slowly plod through a sentence, and that, that forces us to slow down, read more closely, and ask questions of why are things structured the way they are? Yeah, I think that your point about it, it makes you a better reader because it makes you a slower reader. We... And even more so, I feel like, as our culture continues to develop, we are so accustomed to skimming. You know, I mean, think about if you if you're if you're on social media, 
or even just when you go to a news website or something, you skim. Sure. You, you blitz through quickly, look at some headlines, and then maybe if you click on one and you read the first paragraph and then maybe skim down through the rest. You go, is this interesting? Is this, is this helpful? Eh, no big deal. And then you just move right on. And when it comes to the biblical text, I think one of the things that happens is if we're, if we're familiar with it on the English mm-hmm. level, we fool ourselves into thinking, oh, I know what this verse says. And we just read it quickly, and we never stop to slow down and go, wait a minute, is that what it really means? Have I understood that properly? Have I noticed how the pieces fit together? And the benefit of the languages is, it, is that it forces you to slow down and put the things together. And oftentimes, that's when you realize, I've never noticed this mm-hmm. about this verse or about this passage. And if I just slowed down, I would have noticed it before. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing uh, that, that comes to mind when I think of what, what are some of the other benefits um, is it causes us to think about the words that we use in English. Um, you know, the, the English translations are very, very good. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't get me wrong. But between languages, regardless of the language, um, but certainly between Greek and English, there is not a one-to-one equivalency. Yeah. Uh, and so it causes us to look at some of the Greek words and say, my goodness, this Greek word has this range, and we could use these two or three English words mm-hmm. to really fill it. And so it causes us to th- think deeply even about single words. Yeah. And I think, too, if we're, if, if we're committed to understanding the meaning of the text, if, if, if we are committed to the evangelical conviction that the meaning of a text is determined by the authorial intent, and I would say both human and divine authorial intent, as communicated by the words, the phrases, the, 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 the sentences, the clauses, etc., then that means that we should be diving in to try to understand how the text hangs together, because that's part of how a text communicates meaning. The relationship between clauses and phrases and sentences and paragraphs and chapters and all those sorts of things, that's, that's not a nice add-on to the meaning. It, it's part of how meaning is communicated by the way you uh, understand the relationship between words and phrases and clauses and sentences, etc. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you are able to study the original languages, you have access to how that works, whereas from the English, you don't. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes, just to use an example from Greek, you know, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, one sentence in Greek. Yeah. That's terrible English. That's, that's just bad English. Terrible yeah. English. Solid Greek, not good yeah. English. And so, inevitably, that means the English translator, whether it's in the ESV, the NIV, the NAS, the King James, whatever you use, they had to make choices as to, okay, we're going to break a sentence here. And mm-hmm. start a new sentence here, but if you don't, if you're not, if you don't have access to the Greek, you may not necess- necessarily know the relationship between those sentences, those clauses, and so you're dependent upon the decision of the English translations. And again, the English translations are very good. We are spoiled with the wealth of riches we have in translations in the English language, but your you're prevented from 
making your own conclusions and being able to see it for yourself. Yeah. And at times, individual English translations don't always serve us the best in terms of helping the reader see how a text hangs together. Yes, and, and sometimes most English translations are very, very good. But even the good ones at times will, will be a big swing and a miss on the translation. <laughs> there, there are moments. Yeah. They're, far and few, they're few and far between, but there are moments where there are big swings and misses. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that um, that sort of direct access um, is, is so beneficial. I've, I've heard this story told a variety of different ways. I don't know the source, but I've always heard it in the context of Hebrew. But um, the, the, the sort of analogy of um, – Reading the biblical text through translation is like kissing your bride through a veil. Yeah. That kind of gets the point across. Like, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, does it work? Well, sure. Yeah. But there's an immediacy that's lost mm-hmm. in, in terms of that. So um, what else do you think in terms of just the benefits of, of the language, of learning the biblical languages? Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you just said was great, you know, that, that, it, that it is a way that we get to interact with the scriptures in the way that the apostles, um, particularly when, when it comes to Greek or the prophets in, in terms of Hebrew, wrote them. You know, it, it, it's yeah. a way that we get to really uh, see them for who they are and see the actual words that they used and, uh, and the expressions that they used. Yeah. I want to hit on two more things before we move on to the dangers. Um, one is I'll, I'll follow up a little bit on what you said in terms of the the sort of the formation, the discipline aspect. Learning the languages is the blue collar aspect of theological education. Yeah, there's there's just no replacement for it, you know. Well, and it's it's typically like when I think when a lot of students go into theological education, they think, oh yeah, it'll be great. We'll have these great theological conversations about predestination and free will and. And yeah, those are fun. But when it comes to learning the languages, that's the blue collar work. Yeah. It's not glamorous to sit there and spend hours memorizing vocabulary and noun endings and verb endings and those kinds of things. Very few people find that life giving. Sure. But it's valuable. And it's sort of, it builds patterns of discipline, it builds patterns of doing things that you're not necessarily drawn to because spoiler alert to those who are not in ministry, you will have aspects of your ministry or your job for that matter that you won't enjoy. But if you don't have the discipline to do them, that will cause significant problems for you. And so it builds patterns of discipline of needing to do it regularly, needing to be faithful to it, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's the what is it the lunch pail? Uh, is, yeah. is that the blue collar? Yeah, um, it's it's the guys bringing the lunch pails. It's it's yeah. that in seminary education. Yeah, and one other benefit is it does give you access to a wider range of resources and tools that you can use effectively to study the text. Okay, so those are the benefits. Now, what are some of the dangers, John? Uh, well, I remember being in Greek exegesis and you forcing us to read a book called Exegetical Fallacies. <laughs> yes. Which was a, I don't recommend it for, for the light reader out there. No. But, uh, but essentially, it is a chapter-by-chapter chapter blow on 
common mistakes made uh, when when uh, when performing exegesis, and so I, I think one of the dangers is that just the dangers are uh, the mistakes that can be made can be multiplied and right. can be in different ways. And because we're not native speakers of the language, we may be more susceptible to some of those mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. D.A. Carson wrote that book, Exegetical Fallacies. Yeah. And so... And he names names. Oh, he book. does. He names names, um, including himself. He does throw himself under the bus <laughs> yeah. at one point. Uh, but there's a YouTube clip where he's on a panel discussion with Al Mohler and Tom Schreiner and somebody else, I think, too, about, you know, learning the languages and that sort of thing. And he, he basically says, I tell my students that if within the first five years after you've graduated, I, I come across you saying, in the Greek it says, from one of your sermons, I will throttle you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a good helpful caution there mm-hmm. in terms of making sure we use it well. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not saying don't use your Greek. He's saying essentially don't say that expression and sort of hold it over your listeners' heads as this sort of um, sledgehammer that you're hitting them with. Yes, it can, it can feel like a power move, can't it? To, sure. to just go, in the Greek, by the way, which you can't understand and only I get. You right. Know, um, right. And it, so it can, breed, it can breed a sense of arrogance absolutely. On, the, on the part of the, of the preacher or the teacher that I have this secret knowledge that you don't. And mm-hmm. so... We've got to be absolutely uh, careful about that. Um, and I think that one other that I'll add is that you have to be so careful that in referring to what the original languages say, if you think whatever English translation you're using from the pulpit makes a mistake or doesn't quite capture the meaning as well as some other English translation might, you have to be so careful that you're not subtly saying um, things like, well, you know, I know your ESV says this, but actually in Greek, the meaning is this. If you have a steady diet of that, what you're essentially doing is you're telling the congregation you can't trust your English translation. Yeah, That's the last thing you want to do. And, and I think an easy fix for that is to just go, well, you know, translating the Bible is a very difficult thing. This is one way to do it. I think perhaps a better way to do it is to say this. And I, th- I think that's a way to, to sort of get around that. Yeah, and I think you could even say something like, perhaps, perhaps a better way to capture what Paul seems to be saying here is, and then substituting the use of another English translation, or if you can't find one that you think actually really nails it, offering your own sort of summary translation of it. But that just feels different than, I know your translation says this, but the Greek says this. That just creates this underlying suspicion of, I can't trust my English Bible. And that you just don't want people walking away from your preaching and teaching saying, oh gosh, I guess I can't trust my Bible. Yeah, absolutely. So be so careful with that. Um, any other dangers that you want to you want to highlight there, or are you ready to move on to uh, how do, how do we do it well? I think I think we're ready to move on. Okay. Yeah. So, um, any thoughts on how we use the languages well? The the one that comes to mind for me um, is is that 
most language work and preaching and teaching should be behind the scenes. Um, it, it should not make it into the presentation uh, of uh, regular preaching and teaching in the church. Uh, probably 95% of it should not make it to, uh, to your preaching and teaching, but should be uh, so, sort of the foundation work that if somebody comes to you and goes, how did you get there? You're mm-hmm. able to then go back and show them, well, here's what I did. And so, so that's, that feels like one way that we can use the languages uh, really well. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you, th- if you consider even the structure of a building, much of the structure of a building may not be immediately evident to the naked eye, but it's there. And yeah. it's support, it, it's, it's, that structure is what enables the whole building to stand and not fall apart, mm-hmm. even if you can't always see the foundation or the load-bearing walls or those sorts of things where to the naked eye, you don't necessarily see it, but it's absolutely foundational to holding together the whole thing. And that's, that's something that I think is worth keeping in mind. Another thing is um, for if you've learned the languages, the best way to hang on to them is just to use them every opportunity you get. Reading the text, translating the text if you have the time to do it, um, and making it a regular practice is is really the essential key, I think, to maintaining the languages once you've gone through the hard work of learning them. And uh, this is one way I've been able to keep my Greek is um, at various times uh, throughout, goodness, through um, my master's degree and even into to this role, uh, finding somebody to meet with once a week to just yep. get together and read. I haven't had that in a couple of years, but it has been some. It has been a good practice to just get together and say, "This is a no judgment zone." <laughs> yeah. If we have to ask, "What's this word?" Yep. And it's like, "Well, it's the word the," you know, or, or something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's fine. So. Well, um, we probably need to move on at this point, but. Um, you know, the languages are near and dear to our heart because, not just because we teach, both of us teach Greek, but because we're committed to God's Word, and they are remarkably helpful tools in better understanding and explaining and applying God's Word. So, with that said, we're at episode 33. Episode 33. We, we have ourselves some— uh, A list— some players, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for thirty-three, you want to you want to take us through those? Yeah, I'm going to move pretty quickly because we have a number of them. Yeah. Um, uh, Larry Bird. Yep. I've, you know, pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Hot take uh, there. <laughs> uh, Kareem. Uh, also, not bad. Not bad. Uh, Patrick Ewing. Yep. Um, Scotty Pippen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Murray. Remember him from the Orioles, baseball player? I do not. Okay. Okay. Would have been before your time. All right. Uh, and Tony Dorsett, uh, the running back. Again, before your time, but you're familiar with yeah, him. Yeah, NFL Cowboys films. running back. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, we have some OSU players, one of which I've heard of. Uh, yeah, I'd imagine James Laurinaitis you've yeah. heard of, the little animal. Yeah. His dad was a professional wrestler? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yep. So he played, in the, he played at Ohio State from 2005 to 2008, and then probably had a— seven-year NFL career or so, maybe. Okay. Um, so good good NFL linebacker. Not great, but good. Yeah. Um, and then on the current roster, there's a running back named Master Teague. I love that. That's a great name. Yeah. So he's a— uh, he'll, Master. He's a, he, well, he's in his sophomore season currently. Okay, so give him another year and— 
Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, man, who are we going with here? Okay, so I grew up watching the Knicks. <laughs> um, and and I'd really like to go Patrick Ewing. But if, if you have great objection to Patrick Ewing. I suspected this would be how it went. <laughs> now, left to my own devices, I probably would have picked Larry Bird. But I'm not willing to um, throw down on this. And okay. so I, I am willing to defer. You have deferred to my Ohio State uh, preferences in the past, and so I'm going to return the favor here, and we will go with uh, Patrick Ewing, who he, was a dominant college center as well as an outstanding NBA center. And I believe uh, at Georgetown yeah. they had him block, block, uh, really uh, – uh, uh, they counted, um, but he blocked the first two shots of the national championship game. Yeah, just to intimidate. Just to scare the other yeah. team, which yeah. which I love. He was a beast. Know? He was a beast. Okay, one thing we liked. Well, I'll, I'll go first. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrea and I found this fantastic ice cream shop in Fort Wayne called The Micro Creamery. Uh, it was fantastic. We got there at 7.45, and there was a line around the corner um, and so we waited wow. in line for an hour. It was delicious. Was the line socially distanced? It was. It was. And part of the line was that only one person was allowed in the shop at a time. I see. So you had to go in, order, get your ice cream, and then leave. Gotcha. Okay. So right. Micro Creamery, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yes. This from the man who once in my presence called Sugar the White Devil. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I stand by that, but I've, left, I've taken the foot off the gas a little bit. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, yeah, so for me, um, I don't think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but um, my wife is a- an amazing cook. And in particular, she is known for her meatloaf. And not just any meatloaf, but she likes to make it in shapes, right? Oh, I'm familiar. Yes, yes, yes. I know. So she has evolved in her um, making of meatloaf, and, and she now makes such a remarkable bacon-wrapped, cheese-stuffed mm. meatloaf. When, when did, she, did she make it this week? She made it, uh, yes, yes. And so it was, um, it's delightful. Was, there, was it COVID-shaped or like what, what, was the, what was the shape of the meatloaf? <laughs> she doesn't always do shapes. So this was a non-shaped okay. version. Um, but she has in the past been known to make the shape of, so for example, when you finished your, MDiv here and then went to do your THM in, in Louisville, Southern, Kentucky. In Louisville. Yeah. Um, what was the shape of the... Uh, well, it was a Kentucky-shaped meatloaf. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> with, with a little little flag in it yeah. that had the spot for Louisville. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, yes, that's just one of her many creations. So that's my one thing I liked. So Great. It is delicious, I can't attest. It is. It is. Are we uh, ready to go mission accomplished here? I think so. We've got yeah. a lot going on, so we probably need to wrap this thing up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's a busy day. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So we'll call it mission accomplished. And one more reminder that if you want to get a question to us for our Q&A episode, that'll be the next episode. you got to hustle up and do that. Reach out to us on social media or email. But mission accomplished for today, and so... Until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.